Assalamualaikum and hello there. Welcome to the first episode, the introduction episode of Children in Troubled Families podcast. So today we're going to just go through about children in, you know, troubled families. Um, well, let's start by defining the family first. The family, the basic definition is a group of individuals who share a legal or genetic bond. It is the basic social unit, which means it is the basic unit for society. And it represents people living together by ties of marriage or blood, blood or adoptions in a single household. So now, before we can take a look about children in troubled families, I think it's wise for us to take a look of the characteristics of a healthy family first. I mean, from there we can, if we know about the characteristics of a healthy family, then we can um, easily pinpoint which family is not healthy, um, which means the troubled family, of course. So, um, these are the characteristics of a healthy family. Firstly, they communicate well and listen to all of the family members because the basic of a relationship, of a relationship is communication. And this applies to all types of communi- uh, relationship. The second one, um, the members affirm and support each other. So this will strengthen the family unit. The third characteristic is um, each member teaches respect for others and that respect is valued by the family the fourth one they have a sense of trust with each other and then they can play and they are able to have fun together which means human uh, humor is present there so so looking in that sense um, a home provision of a home is an essential essential function of family because psychologists hold that probably the single the greatest single cause of emotional difficulties and behavioral problems is lack of love which means lack of a warm affectionate relationship within a small circle of intimate associates so so we can see from this um, one of the function of family is to provide the feeling of home to its inhabitants i'm sorry i mean to its members because home is where the heart belongs and home is where you feel safe secure and being cared so now that we take a look about you know what makes a family a normal family a healthy family now let's take a look what makes a family dysfunctional now we can define dysfunctional family um which but uh, which is a family in which conflict misbehavior and abuse and even abuse on the part of individual members occur continually leading other members to accommodate such actions and it's important to note since we're talking about children in this part of the families children sometimes grow up in such families with the understanding that such an arrangement is normal when it is not so there are eight rules of dysfunctional families. The first one is control, where the aggressor must be the one in control of behaviors, feelings, and relationships of the other family members. The second one is perfectionism, where the aggressor must be right about everything. The third one is blame, where the aggressor will blame other 
people than his or herself for any problem that happened in the family. The fourth one is denial, which means denial of feelings, thoughts, perceptions, wants, and imaginations. The fifth one is no talk rule, which means you are not being allowed to talk honestly about whatever you want to or you need to. The sixth one is myth making, which means aggressor manipulates others thinking to allow his or her wrongdoing. You know, for example, the aggressor might say, um, despite the problems, we can still look at the bright side, or this is not a problem at all, this is normal, this is what people do. The next rule is incompletion, where differences stay unresolved and others stay upset and confused. And the last rule is unreliability, where victims are not able to trust anyone and they choose and they choose to not trust anyone so they would, would not be disappointed. Okay. Now in a family, usually there are parents and the children. And in dysfunctional families families there are certain type of parents and there are also certain type of children. So firstly we'll take a look at the parents. There are four types of parents in dysfunctional families. families. The first one is abusive parents. It can be physical or non-physical. And abusive parents are often seen as the worst kind of parent. parents since their words and actions are, are often seen as deliberate, intentional, and malicious form of child abuse. The second one is controlling parents where they fail to ref they fail or refuse to allow their children to grow up by denying them to make choices or decisions that are appropriate of their age. They are usually driven by fear and they will continue to make decisions even when the ch their children are at an age where they can make basic choices and decisions for themselves. For example, even when the child let's say 25-ish <laughs> Uh, I mean, the parent would still try to like control like what the what that person is wearing or even going, which is not normal and not healthy. And as the children become more independent, controlling parents will feel abandoned and betrayed, while the children will feel resentful and sometimes inadequate, as they have been denied the opportunity to think and make decisions for themselves. The third type of parents um, uh, is deficient parents. Um, worth to note that this may be intentional or may be unintentional. Because deficient parents are parents who fail to fulfill their tasks as parents and they fail to fulfill their children's needs. Um, for example, intentional is, you know, um, for example, you're gambling, so you're not taking care. You're fulfilling your past, you're not taking care of your children's needs. Or, for example, of unintentional, maybe the parents are um, disabled. So they are so they unintentionally, um, well, not unintentionally, they are unable as a result of their disabilities. They are unable to fulfill their children's needs. So what will happen in this family is the children will often grow up too soon. They will mature too soon so and they will take on the role and responsibilities of the parents and neglect their own their own feelings and needs and they may even become the unofficial caretaker if they have younger siblings 
the final type of parents is addictive addict parents this is the combination of the deficient parent plus abusive parents because they are unpredictable as their lives are governed by their addictions so the children of these parents are prone to abuse and exploitation by the parents and also other people because they are seen as easy targets and vulnerable since the since the parents are often physically and emotionally unavailable so with that being said that's the type of parents now let's take a look at the types of children that came out from these types of parents there are five types the first one is the enabler child you can say that this child is the major for the family this child is typically responsible for most if not all domestic duties like child rearing cooking and cleaning and they also try to protect the family which means they try to hide and conceal the family problems from the public's eye and Actually, this role is usually assumed by a parent actually. It's not really children. Um, you know, for example, a mother try to um, try to hide the fact that her daughter is being molested by his own husband. Yeah, that is the kind of like the enabler. But actually, children too can al also adopt this role. The second type of child is the hero child. This is the overachieving perfectionist. This role is usually assumed by a child who may be an excellent student with great achievements. The hero child may come from controlling parents um, and they make the family look good and the parents functional which means what happens in the family stays in the family and they have a compulsive drive to succeed but they are also prone to feelings of inadequacy and failure so this may manifest into depression and other psychological difficulties and they may also suffer from stress related illness and can be extremely judgmental controlling and rigid and most of the hero children are suicidal the third type of child is the scapegoat child which means the problem child um, they usually act out saying and doing problematic things and they usually and as a result they usually struggle academic academically they participate in delinquent and criminal behavior um, they may experiment in drugs and alcohol and they are also prone to aggressive outbursts um, and specifically females are more prone to sexual promiscuity but Despite all of this, they are actually the most emo emotionally honest members because they are the most caring and sensitive so they get hurt more easily um, and they're the first ones to have emotional crisis and the first ones to seek counseling and therapy. These are the type of child who you know you seem tough on the outside but when you do take time to get to know him or her uh, he or she will start to open up more and more and be more honest. The fourth type of child is the lost child, which means the invisible child. This child um, usually have the characteristics of being aloof, shy, isolated, and independent by the outside world. They tend to avoid family chaos by escaping into things like hobbies, board games, and maybe ultimately lead to indulging and finding comfort in alcohol and drugs or um, excessive eating and shopping. 
They also prefer to be alone and often have difficulties forming relationships. And the last type of child is the mascot child. The mascot child is always seen as very sociable, entertaining, humorous, hyperactive, fun-loving, happy-go-lucky, you know, all those that good stuff. So all of these characteristics and behaviors act like a thick mask to conceal the deeper pain and suffering. And they will usually have difficult time dealing with serious issues. They will just like laugh it off and they also have a hard time identifying and expressing their true feelings. Um, now here are a few common characteristics of dysfunctional families. Firstly, love is not given unconditionally but is given based on performance or other conditions in general, which means love is earned rather than freely given. So people are loved for what they do instead of who they are. This is a disturbing thing. <laughs> this is a disturbing thing to be thinking of actually. Okay. The second characteristic is positive emotions and feelings are not freely and openly discussed. Next, problems and troubles in the family are uh, also not freely and openly discussed. So what? It, it counts emotions, feelings, problems. Oh yeah, okay. The the two the two aspects of it, the emotions, the in the family and the problems in the family are not freely and openly discussed. Okay. Next one, family members are caught up in maintaining a public image. Uh, which means they need to maintain that image to the public as a whole healthy functioning family um, and then open and honest communication are rare almost never or may even be never at all um, so since the family members experience a great deal of personal hurt and suffering but but they are not able to deal with it openly so they will try to mask it so well that they deny the feelings entirely so yeah that is the common characteristics of dysfunctional families so the following are the conditions in which families can become dysfunctional um, for example um, there are family members who are alcoholic or drug addict um, when there are family members who is addicted to food, gambling, sex, or to some other form of dependent behavior. Uh, when a child with a developmental disability is born to a family. When, um, a f when there are family members who are materialistic and values things to the exclusion of persons. When there are family members who are suffering from mental illness. When a major disaster befalls the family. For example, death of the parent or child, home is destroyed, a family member is, um, is being a victim of a very serious crime, like maybe um, being raped, uh, murdered, or critically injured, or maybe there are person in, maybe a major accident occurs that result in a permanent disability or even death and chronic illnesses, and then severe financial problems so those are some major disasters that may trigger a family to become dysfunctional apart from that yeah also when 
um, families can also become dysfunctional when there are family members abusing the others, when the family is forced into a single parent model due to divorce or death or spouse excessive traveling, when family members is rigid in the expression of feelings or emotions with others, when there are family members who are incapable of displaying physical affection openly to others, um, when there are one family members who are incapable of developing intimate relationship with others, and finally, when there are family members who, who are workaholic. Let's go to the behavioral patterns in dysfunctional families. First one is looking good. Um, you know, when there's an over-responsible pattern of high achievement and denial of family problem. So, in order to achieve this, behavior scripts carried by family members for perhaps their entire lives will be conducted. Um, and maybe when these family members have their own families, they can hand down actually these behavioral patterns. So this can result a cross-generational transmission of these roles and characteristics, which means just, you know, like the children in troubled families tend to have troubled families themselves. And then the second pattern is acting up, which means an irresponsible pattern of low achievement and much troublemaking that diverts attention from the troubles in the family. The third one is pulling in, um, where the withdrawn behavior pattern of a loner who resorts to a low profile to hold in emotions in order to survive the high stress family. Next is entertaining, which you know, which like it's like a diversion you know you want to draw attention away by clowning amusing hyperactivity etc next one is troubled person which means an an irresponsible pattern of problem behavior and it's often the cause and focus of the great stress in the family and the next one is enabling we we'll talk a bit about this on the enabler child um, it is an over-responsible pattern of protecting, assisting, persuading troubled person to reduce the stress in their family but usually that don't really work so it's more to like able to, it's just more to enable the aggressor to do more damage than good. Next one is rescuing. This is also a type of an over-responsible pattern of helping others in the family to reduce the tension, anxiety, hurt and pain. The next one is people pleasing. This is also a type of uh, an over responsible approval seeking pattern characterized by excessive social appropriateness and immobilized decision making. And the last one is non feeling. It is a non emotive stoic pattern of denial, problems, and feelings that assist an individual in surviving the high stress of family. So, there are a few theoretical foundations that we can use to explain troubled families and what happened to the children in those families. When we say we use theoretical foundations, which it means we want to use appropriate theories to explain dysfunctional family and find solution. So there are three of them. The first one is family composition perspective, which means two parent, two parent intact families are the best family structure for children. Which means dysfunctional family happen when um, that two parent intact family model are not conducted. 
Children who are not raised by both of their biological parents will suffer lower level of well-being than children from intact families. And children who grow up in single-parent families as reconstituted families have lower, lower level of well-being because they lose some social capitals. So, theorists who do favor this perspective, they see this loss of social capital for children from single parent and non-intact families as inevitable because they argue that family structure has a direct connection to the well-being of children. But there are also people who counter this because they say the social, the loss of social capital for one parent can actually be replaced by another individual or that the residential parent can compensate for the absent one. Okay, the second theoretical foundation is family process perspective, um, where family processes are the ones that influence children's well-being, and these processes mediate the effects of family structure. It reflects on the quality of the parent-child relationships and the quality of the relationships between the parents themselves. So theorists who do favor the family process perspective argue that if children have good family processes, for example, high-quality parent-child relationships, low parental conflict, then their well-being will be high regardless of their family structure, whether single parent or not intact family. And the last one is family system theory. This is similar to Brown Furness ecological theory, um, but we view them um, when you but we view them in, a, in an approach of focusing a, on entire family unit when assessing needs and service approach for responding to child abuse and neglects. So it says that um, dysfunctional family um, is a consequence from dysfunctional relationships among family members. When families are studied and understood as systems, intervention services can be designed and implemented that enhance the quality of life, security of membership, and personal sense of competence of each family member. So, using systems approach, all major environmental influences on the developing child can come together collaboratively to enhance each child's level of performance and competence. So, um, I guess that's it for now. Um, that's the whole introduction for children in troubled families. Let's just recap a bit. Uh, family can be defined as a group of individuals who share a legal genetic bond. While dysfunctional family is a family in which conflict, misbehavior, and even abuse on the part of individual members occur individually leading other family members to accommodate such actions. The rules of dysfunctional family are control, perfectionism, blame, denial, no talk, myth-making, incompletion, and unreliability. There are four, parent, four types of parents of dysfunctional families, abusive parents, controlling parents, deficient parents, and addict parents. Well, then there are five types of children of dysfunctional families. The enabler child, the hero child, the scapegoat child, the lost child, and the mascot child. And the, there are some behavioral patterns in dysfunctional families. Um, so these patterns are looking good, acting out, 
rescuer pulling in the drawer by, by the enemy drawer uh, entertaining people pleasing troubled person enabling and non-feeling and lastly um, there are three theoretical foundations that we can look um, in viewing troubled families which are family composition perspective family process perspective and family system theory okay so that's it i guess i think we recap that's the recap so thank you so much for listening until the end i hope you come right more for you to learn more and more about children and dysfunctional families thank you and i hope you guys have, have a wonderful day ahead Assalamualaikum and hello. I hope you guys have a wonderful day today. If not, I hope you guys have a wonderful day ahead. Now, this is the second episode of Children in Troubled Families. And now we're here to talk about broken family and domestic violence. So yeah, that's the two main thing of this episode. Okay, let's go through that one by one. Firstly, we let's um, take a look at the broken family part. Now, broken home can be defined as a family in which one parent is absent, usually due to divorce um, or um, death. Um, so, in broken home, um, it lacks coordination and general harmony, which means um, it lacks coordination and has general disharmony, which means everyone kind of does their own thing without consent or approval from others and to a certain ex extent and utter disregard and indifference towards feelings of other members in the home. Now, there are, there are a few main causes of broken family. I mean, obviously there's a lot a lot of things that causes broken family, but all of those things can be tracked down to these three things. The first one is lack of effective communication in every relationship. I've talked about this before. Um, the key, the basic of a relationship is communication. And any lack of communication, the, let alone the effective communication, will always lead to misconceptions and conflicts. conflicts. The second one is abuse, where there are um, partners, uh, there are family members who abuse the other family members. And then the third one is influence. Um, this influence can come from outside, um, like, you know, substance uh, abuse type of influence, you know, like alcohol and drugs, or they can also be other people who, you know, just want to watch the family burn, so they try to, um, I don't know what's the word in English. You can say that mencucu lah, you try hasut kau. I don't know what's that in English. <laughs> can someone translate for me? <laughs> but uh, you can say that's the three causes of broken family. Now, what actually are the consequences of broken family? There are a few of them. Um, the first one is warped relationship, with me, which means the relationship um, is being distorted from the true meaning of that particular relationship. For example, if you are married but your partner is an abuser, so that relationship is being distorted. Um, that partner is abusing you, um, but it's not supposed to be like that way. 
but that's how your relationship has always been working so that's a distorted relationship the relationship is the relationship is seen as source of hardship and sorrow this kind of relationship they are the one who makes some girls believe that all men is like their father i mean if their father was abusive yeah so um, or their brothers for example so they close up to most relationships most romantic relationships and that's for girls and for boys um, rock relationships can make some boys cannot see commitment as a requisite for a relationship which means in this in this case they will tend to be more like their father if their father is um, the abuser which means they will do violence and aggression in that particular relationship and they will walk out of any relationship as they like. The second effect is from the educational perspective where the children can lose concentration um, in school. They have more self-doubt and lack of confidence. So as a result, their educational performance uh, is always low. The third one is emotional instability, which means rapid changes in moods where strong feelings occur. Children will show heightened irritability or temper because of abandonment, so some act of their distress by acting aggressive and engaging in bullying, and this negatively will affect their peer relationships. And for some others, they may experience anxiety, so this makes them difficult um, to engage in beneficial activities. Now that's the broken home part. Now that's the domestic violence part. Now domestic violence can be defined as the pattern of abusive behavior in any relationship that is used by one partner to gain maintain and to gain or maintain power and control over another partner. Now there are a few factors that um there are few factors and by factors I mean social psychological variables associated with family violence. The first one is cycle of violence and that is exactly how that sounds. Um, when you do violence your victim also tend to tend to be violent. Yeah that's as bad as it sounds. So there are two ways how cycle of violence are being manifest. The first one individuals who has who had abusive childhood them to become abusers like I said just now or it can also refers to the three phase sequence um, cycle that leads to violence and more violence um, so generally um, you can say that the three like imagine an abusive partner there will be time when there's an increasing tension you know something triggers that person to be mad and then finally he lost controls and I guess beat up his other partner and then the third one is rec reconciliation where the offender apologizes and victim forgives and then things just start to repeat all over again so yeah that's three so that's a three phase sequence um, cycle so in a tension building um, the offender will um, be moody, um, be yelling, withdraws affections, they indulge in drinking and drugs, they destroy property, um, you know, they do all those bad stuff. And the victim's response is usually attempts to calm partner, they stay away from their families and friends to make sure that 
their this particular partner does not you know blow off in front of their other their other relatives um, and they try to be silent and they try to just and if they and tries to reason and if they have children they will try to keep children out of the way okay now the second is the loss of control phase where the better will you know do whatever that he does so he, he hit you know he hit humiliate like imprisonment or maybe use weapons or use verbal abuse so in this um, explosion the victim's response is usually try to protect himself uh, maybe call for help maybe try to calm partner um, tries to reason and maybe even try to fight by fight back and may actually leaves but then comes the third phase the reconciliation where the offender will apologize they try to change they will try to persuade this and presence um, you know all of that they try to do and then the victim's re response will try to stop help and they try to help to change and they feel happy and hopeful but again this is a cycle and then after that all of that is just repeat so yeah that's the second way of how cycle of violence is um, being manifested um, so that's the first factor the cycle of violence the second factor is socio-economic status um, studies found that family system from lower socioeconomic status tend to have low quality of life high environmental stress and low cultural conditioning or standards the third factor is stress which may come from poverty unemployment part-time only part-time employment financial instability pregnancy or child or single parenthood so this can also occur uh, contributes to violence and then the last factor is social isolation which means family alienated from the community increases the risk of abusive behavior directed towards children or spouse so if we think about it that way then we can also say social interactions with other families tend to act as a control mechanism to reduce risk of such behavior so now we get you know about domestic violence you know how it happens so now let's take a look at what it does what are actually the consequences the impacts so especially on children now it's worth to know that every child will be affected even babies this is a huge huge misconception um to adults like you know like children don't do any don't know anything so things serious things that happen don't really affect them maybe not like if we try to like look like things are okay they'll be okay this is actually really really wrong um children do sense problems and they are do affected by problems even if they don't understand that problem completely and this impact of domestic violence as being said one of the problems they depend on the level of violence they have witnessed the duration of violence and the support they receive and it's also it also actually depends on the age um, so here I will I would like to elaborate more on the age um, actually on my notes it's super super long so I've tried to like conclude it to just a few things that I can say 
so it won't feel like I'm just reading things out. Okay. So um, we begin by looking at the children below two years old. Okay. Firstly, they, what they're going to do is regression, which means they will stop doing things that they have learned in the developmental um, process and they return to babyish behavior. Um, maybe, um, maybe a two-year-old boy um, will wet his bed. Uh, usually, he, he never do that, but he'll wet his bed. Or maybe a baby who started learning to walk will not walk anymore. So yeah, that's a form of, of regression. I mean, me myself, um, I was really baffled when I learned the concept of regression. I felt like it was impossible, but it is. <laughs> It is possible. And in the second one, they tend to be frightened by the abuse, of course, but um, they will tend to be frightened by anything that associates with the abuser. For example, if a father is an abuser, then the daughter might be afraid of men in general. So yeah, and then they, and then, like, I I'm not really an expert of PTSD, but I. But the third um, impact, I can say, if they can um, have some PTSD symptoms like nightmares, broken sleep, um, aggress being aggressive, so yeah, those are the symptoms. And then the fourth one, you know, they're below two years old, so they can be clingy, especially to the non non-abuser um, parents. So they can be clingy. They they have really hard time separating with um their you know for example their mother so yeah just so that's for children below two years next is children to um on children who is two to five years old um again they will um they will experience regression and they will try to not show emotion and they will start to take action you know before this they are below two years old so they're still technically a baby but now they're a kid they can do something so they will try to take action for example they will try to stop the violence and they may feel guilty when they can't do so so or they may even try to hurt themselves so yeah the key point is they have started to take action here and next for children 5 to 11 years old now they will take action even more actively like for example before five year old maybe maybe that that um kid maybe just like shout just like stop fighting i don't want you fighting maybe just like that but when you're when the kid is five to eleven years old like like he will try to directly and actively trying to stop the violence and possibly getting hurt in the process and then they they may um act well in front of their parents and home but they're the total opposite on the outside and then since this is the time where they're still being egocentric so they will tend to think like everything's that happening is their fault so this will damage your self-esteem and they will also try to take responsibilities uh, i mean we talk about this quite a bit in hero child so yeah this is the part where they've started to become hero child or enabler child and then as a result of being distressed and then doing all of those things said they will constantly um, perform poorly at school 
So next for 11 to 18 years old, they are adolescents now. So in this um, time frame, they will have relationship. They will have difficulty forming relationship, whether it is friendship or romantic relationship or even relationship among family members themselves. And then they will take more passively actions, like they try to run away from home. Um, they will. Um, oh, about the relationship difficulty, they will also be confused about the roles of men and women. Like, should I be or not be like my dad? Or how I can be or cannot be like my dad? You know, all of that stuff. And this is where the, the, the abuse tendency here. Like, for, for example, like taking action. This is where they might be turned into an addict because they find comfort in drugs and alcohol and stuff like that. So this, this is where it might start. So yeah, that's the broken family. That's the end of this episode. Um, I'll just recap in general. Broken family can be defined as a family in which one family, uh, one parent is absent, usually due to divorce. Yeah, usually due to divorce, and there are harmony and lack of coordination. Um, and then and the causes of broken family are uh, lack of effective communication, abuse, and influence. The effects of broken families are work, work relationships, educational, poor educational performance, and emotional instability. Then domestic violence can be defined as the pattern of abusive behavior in any relationship that is used by one partner to gain or maintain power and control over another partner. Uh, there are some factors associated with domestic violence. The first is cycle of violence, socioeconomic status, stress and social isolation. And the impact um, of broken family and domestic violence toward children, they vary, they depend on the age. Uh, of the children, the level of violence, the duration of violence, and the support they receive. Wow. Okay, that's it. This is a very, to be honest, disturbing topic to talk about, but um, the bottom line is I hope we all can learn from this. That's the most important thing. That's what we're really doing all of us, at least. Just like we're trying to learn to so we can apply it in our lives in a good way so again thank you for listening um, i hope you'll stick around for more learning to come so thank you and i hope you have a wonderful day ahead assalamualaikum and a very good morning today um, i hope you guys are doing well i hope you have a fantastic day and we will have more fantastic days ahead so for today, we're at the third episode of Children in Troubled Families podcast. So now today, we're going to learn about individual, individual assessment guidelines. I'm sorry. This is important because we want to analyze the seriousness of the case when we're talking about in family, children in troubled families. So we want to make sure that we have um, an objective way of now, in the process of collecting information for the assessment, we need to take note of the Privacy Act. 
because all personal information collected and used is protected from unauthorized disclosure by privacy. Recorded opinion about an individual. Recorded opinion about an individual is considered personal information about and belonging to that individual. So, in a sense, Privacy Act provides clients with the right to access their own personal info and a right to challenge accuracy and completeness of their personal information and have it amended as appropriate. Of course, if you talk about yourself to someone and that particular someone want to convey that information to others, you really want to make sure that they just told what it means, what just need to be told only and it must be accurate. So the privacy act gives you that um, right. Okay. Now let's go to how we assess them. Now, usually the clients, usually we will hear or heard a problem from client first. So when presenting the problem, we usually see it first from the client's perspective. So we need to take note about the description of this problem as reported by clients and especially take note um, with the onset, the frequency, the intensity and the duration and also the impact on daily life and functioning of the client. And then we can move on to see the current patients, the current client psychosocial situation. Where we can take a look at present family situation, which we can look from the family composition, family members' role, family members' responsibility, and family members' data. And then um, we can also take a look at the family as a whole. They have psychological or psychiatric problems. Have they attended counseling, psychotherapy? Have they been hospitalized? And then, do they have? And if they do, you should take note of the of the date, diagnosis, and the name of the clinicians. And with that being said, also, do they have any significant illnesses or injuries? So you take note of that. And then. Um, the next aspect in current psychosocial situation is the living environment. How's the current housing situation and current stresses of the client? And then there's also medical history for both the client and the client's family. Uh, do they have, you know, like I said before, do they have significant illnesses? Uh, what about their medications, the time frames, and the name of the um, clinicians and hospital hospitalizations? And then. Okay, now we talk about two, like the problem presented, the current psychosocial situation, and now we can talk about the current mental status of behavior observations of the client. Um, so it typically includes a description of general appearance, level of alertness, quality of style of speech, general behavior and attitude, and their orientation of knowing who they are, where they are, when is it, what's the time, and reported now. So, from um, us observing this, we can also observe the effect, I mean, from the, um, like, from this, you know, also, from the observation, you can also uh, observe the effect of those said behavior, um, does that affect their thought process, their thought content, their short and long term, their level of insight, their judgment, and their reasoning and communication style. 
So, yeah, surprisingly, we're at the end of this podcast, at this episode. Yeah, this is a very, very short topic. Um, so, I hope you can digest it well. So, I'll summarize. Um, we need assessment guides to determine seriousness of this. And in doing so, we need to take note of the Privacy Act. Um, we need to make sure all the recorded info, personal information are private and the client deserves to have access to those recorded, those documented uh, information and clarify accuracy. So, um, there are three aspects in assessment guys. The, uh, the first one is presenting problems, which we take a look at the problem from, especially from the client's perspective. The second one is current psychosocial situation, which we can take a look at present family situation, the family itself, their living environment and their medical history, and the last one is their current mental status or behavior observations. So, um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay, I'll start now. Um, I hope you guys will have a wonderful day ahead. Bye. Today. So today, now we're at the fourth episode of Children in Troubled Families podcast. And now, I mean, like before this, we were talking about like the introduction and how we assess um, troubled families. Now is the part where we can really get to know why troubled families are. So we will start our topic. I'm sorry, we will start our podcast exploring these type of families by firstly exploring children of alcoholics. Now before we go to what will happen to children of alcoholics, we really need to get know about what is it actually being an, an alcoholic. Okay, so firstly we'll talk about alcohol abuse. We'll talk about the signs and the symptoms of alcohol abuse. Okay. Uh, the signs, um, the first one is they will repeatedly neglecting responsibilities because of drinking. For example, they will perform poorly at work, they will flunk classes, they will neglect their kids just because of alcohol. Secondly, they will use alcohol in physically dangerous situations like in while driving, oper- operating heavy machinery, and they might mix alcohol with their prescription against doctor's orders. Next, they continue to drink even though alcohol, even though their alcohol use is causing problems. They obviously see that alcohol is making their family unhappy, it's making their spouse unhappy, but they still continue to drink so. Next, they drink as a way to relax or de-stress. And yeah, I mean like you have a rough day and you just want to forget things and relax, so you tend to overindulge. And you will go back more and more to that whenever you have stress or troubling days. Then the last one, they will experience repeated legal problems on account of drinking. Like for example, I told you before, maybe they'll get caught driving while drinking. They will maybe caught in doing things um, while they're drunk. Like, you know, destroying properties and such. Now that is alcohol abuse. We need we need to differentiate it with alcoholism. Alcoholism is the most severe form of drinking problem, and alcoholism can be defined or well, not defined, but you can consider alcoholism as alcohol abuse plus physical dependence on the alcohol. 
So it is. It includes alcohol abuse, and it and it has one more factor, one more aspect, which the alcoholic depend on the alcohol physically. So here are the signs and the symptoms. The five main ones are firstly cravings, where drinking alcohol becomes irresistible and fill almost every thought throughout drinker's day. The second one is loss of control, where the drinker, where the alcoholic is unable to control driving compulsion to drink. The third one is physical dependence, like I told you before, but uh, I mean the physical dependence is on the effect, like that euphoria feeling that, that, yeah, it's on the effect. This is what the effect is the alcoholics are dependent on because without alcohol they will experience withdrawal symptoms such as anxiety, irritability, nausea, tremors and even seizures and the fourth one is increasing tolerance which since they drink more and more so they need more and more alcohol to achieve the same results the same euphoric moments yeah they need to they're going to be needing more and more of it and the last one is appearance changes um, to be more exact, poor appearance changes like they will have poor dental hygiene, blotchy skin, full smell, receding hairline, and poor nutrition in general. Now those are the five main symptoms and here are just a bit more. They drink to socialize, um, they hide alcohol and lie about their consumption, they cannot recall events happening while intoxicated, they're unable to quit, and they worry about alcohol running out. Okay, now, there are theoretical explanations um, explaining, uh, I'm sorry, the best theoretical explanation to explain alcoholism is through ecological theory, right? System is direct with each other. So, when we're talking about alcoholism, how does these systems interact with, with each other that they encourage alcoholism? We can see from the individual perspective, from the individual perspective, there's the personality, um, there's schema, and there's normal drinking patterns. Tweaks in these um, aspects can can and may lead to alcoholism. And the second system, uh, the second aspect, which is the first system, is the close context, um, which refers to the friends. So things that may um, have been um, causing alcoholism. Things that may have been causing alcoholism is peer pressure and social network. The second system, the third aspect, is accessibility, which is in society at large. So the accessibility, the accessibility to the alcohol, it depends on the number of outlets, the markets, and environmental disadvantages. And then the last one is the broader issues, which refers to marginalization, stigma segregation, policies. So all of these aspects can, um, tweaks in these aspects can either prevent alcoholism or encourage alcoholism. So, for an individual, it also, um, in the individual aspect, uh, alcoholism actually is, tends to be genetic, so that's one of the individual differences and factors. Where children with alcoholic parents are at in, are also at increased risk for alcoholism themselves. Okay, so now we go through all of that. Now let's see what are psychological effects of alcoholism on children.
The first one is guilt. The children will think maybe if I'm smarter or behave better, um, that won't be. So that is what they're feeling, and mostly it is because of their egocentric feeling during this time. The second um, effect is anxiety, where they often um, worry about how bad it will be that day if that adult. If that intoxicated adult would harm them, etc., and if they're abused, they're also abused. They will fear of that abuse. The third one is embarrassment. Often, alcoholism results in a feeling of secrecy. So children may feel like they cannot talk about their whole life to other people, or they cannot have friends over their house. And in some cases, alcoholic parents may become intoxicated in public. So this can result in further embarrassment. The fourth one is confusion because um, routine is a very important aspect of life at a young age. But if but alcoholic parents um, often make their children lack of routine, so this is very very detrimental. Um, and despite of them not having routine, they themselves also have mood swings. And so this will affect highly um, the children's development, and, it, and especially if the adult is a high-functioning adults who do have alcoholism, the children themselves may be hard to accept that their parents have drinking problems. The fifth one is anger. They may be angry at the parents or others for not noticing or acting about the alcoholism, and this anger can manifest in or even affect their performance in school, in their ability to interact with others, and their desire to succeed. Um, the sixth one is depression, where children may feel very isolated and alone when their parents are drinking. There's that bubble inside their mind that, think, that thinks no one can understand me. Even if that particular child has another siblings, they may still feel um, um, not really connected with their siblings. So that's the psychological effects of alcoholism on children. So one um, interesting thing to look at is what will happen to these children when they're adults? So first one is they may have trouble forming close relationships because they don't want to be let down again just like how their parents let them down. And then they also may do impulsive behaviors. They tend to be, which means they tend to be more emotionally driven and will act quickly on impulse rather than thinking a situation through. Then the third one, they are also themselves um, prone to substance abuse, not just, not just, not just through alcohol and may not even just alcohol. So it's common and saddening actually that for the fact that children of alcoholics tend to develop substance abuse issues of their own. There are, uh, if you are like an outsider or someone who interacts with children, you can actually detect um, the signs of alcoholism at home. Here are a few signs of it. Maybe they don't they perform poorly at school, they don't have many friends, they withdraw from their classmates, they do delinquent behaviors, they have frequent physical complaints, um, they they are also dealing with um, their own issues of substance abuse, 
they may be aggressive toward other children, they do risk-taking behaviors, and they may um, project depression symptoms or suicidal thoughts or behavior. And then, and then um, there's also effects on parental alcoholism that may start even before a child is born. This is known as fetal alcohol syndrome, which is also known as FAS. Um, babies born with F with FAS usually have smaller heads. Um, the babies are usually smaller than normal, and they have facial deformities like long flat noses, misshapen skull. If you Google fetal alcohol syndrome, you can see like they have similar symptoms. Now, let's go to the personality of children of alcoholism. If they grow up with their parents being alcoholic, what kind of personality will be shaped into themselves? The first one is fear of losing control because since childhood they try to maintain control over their behavior and feelings and apart from that they also try to control others' behaviors and feelings. They do this because not that they they want to be like bossy or something, they do this because they are afraid. They relinquish control. Their life will get worse. They do not do this to hurt other people. That's an important thing to take notice. And they can become very, very anxious when they're not able to control the situation. The second personality is fear of emotions. Children, um, people growing up with alcoholism, they tend to bury their feelings, and particularly the feelings of anger and sadness. And even if they want to, they're unable to express or feel the emotions easily. So, the combination of both of this makes them ultimately fear all powerful and even positive situations such as fun and joy. The third personality is they tend to avoid conflict, which means they frequently try to isolate themselves. Children of alcoholics tend to have a fear of people who are in authority and who are angry. So they often mis misinterpret assertiveness for anger and they don't take personal criticism very well. And they are also constantly seeking approval of others while losing their identities in the process. So since they are trying to please people too much, and they don't take personal criticism well, and they often misinterpret assertiveness as anger, so they tend to hate conflict and avoid conflict altogether. The next personality is they are oversensitive to others' needs. Um, this is due to they, they feel like they have a high burden of responsibility and they are constantly trying to seek for approvals. And their self-esteem um, comes from others' judgment of them. So they do have that the compulsive need to be perfectionist and be accepted. The next personality is um, they are unable to relax and have fun because you know that that like I've said before they want to have that control you know so it's stressful and others are watching so they're afraid to let that control go they try their best to appear perfect they exercise very strict self-control the next personality is denial because which means whenever they feel they are threatened, they tend to deny that 
that particular thing um, they fear so this actually tend to provoke their fear more the next personality is they have difficulty with intimacy to be more accurate they have fear with intimacy because again it's about control intimacy makes them feel like they lost control and they have difficulties expressing their needs and consequently have problems with their sexuality when they're adults and they will repeat relationship patterns that their parents did the next personality is they will develop a victim mentality which means they will be either passive or aggressive victims and they are often attracted to others like them whether in friendship, in career or in love relationships the next personality is they will adapt compulsive behavior for example they will eat too much, they will work too much, they will shop too much so they may become addicted and codependent in a relationship or also in other things like you know like i said before like like in eating or in work or in substance itself like drugs and alcohol the next personality is they are more comfortable living in chaos and drama than in peace because firstly it gives them adrenaline fix and feelings of power and growth and secondly, they're just simply they're just being used to it. They don't see peace as normal. They see chaos and drama as normal. The next personality is they tend to confuse love with pain, which means they are often in relationships with people that they rescue, and they are generally attracted to those who are emotionally unavailable. So they will form relationships with others who need their help to the extent of neglecting their own needs. They like to be the rescuer. So yeah, they, they think that they're in love, but actually what they're doing, they just rescue. Which do can turn into romantic feelings, but that does not rest necessarily a thing, a two things that go together. The next one is they have a fear of abandonment. Which means if they do are in a relationship and that particular relationship is unhealthy, they will do anything to save that relationship rather than facing the pain of abandonment. They place focus on needs of someone else, why not? While they are not um, having to examine their own difficulties and shortcomings. And then the final personality, and then the final personality is. And then the final personality is they do harsh self-criticism and low self-esteem which means they are weighed down with a very low sense of self-esteem and respect no matter how competent they may be. So I think that wraps it up. Um, I'll just do a quick recap. Um, signs of alcohol abuse um, Firstly, they repeatedly neglect responsibilities because of drinking They use alcohol when it's dangerous to do so They continue to drink even though knowing it causes problems They drink to relax They repeatedly involve in legal, legal problems because of drinking now, Alcoholism is alcohol abuse plus physical dependence The signs are they have cravings of alcohol They lost control of their um, impulse to drink, they have physical dependence on the alcohol's effect, um, the, their tolerance toward alcohol is increasing and their appearance degrades. Um, some of psychological effects of alcoholism in children are guilty, uh, guilt, anxiety, embarrassment, confusion, anger, and depression. Um, 
And when these children are adults, they may have trouble forming close relationships. They may act impulsively, and they may they themselves may involve in substance abuse. Um, the personality of children of alcoholism are fear of music control, fear of emotions. They avoid conflict. They are oversensitive to others' needs. They cannot relax and have fun. They are always in denial. They have difficulty with intimacy. They develop victim's mentality. Their behavior, they act compulsively. They prefer chaos over peace. They confuse love with pity. They fear abandonment and they have no self-esteem. So that wraps up um, to, for today's episode. Um, this is really quite interesting, you know. As a Muslim, I I am not really that exposed to alcohol and what alcohols can do. Um, but definitely, this gives a lot of insights um, about what actually alcohol can do. Like, if you're involved with alcoholism, you're not the only one that get the consequences. Like, I mean, that's one thing if you want to destroy yourself. But getting involved in alcoholism means you're not just destroying yourself, you're destroying people around you, people that you love and people that love you. So, yeah, take note of that PSAs though. <laughs> okay, thank you again for watching. I hope you guys stay for more episodes to come. Until then, I hope you guys have a good day ahead. Bye. and hello there. I hope you guys have a wonderful day today. Um, so we're now at wait, what number are we? We're at the fifth episode of Children in Troubled Families podcast. We've come a long way, but we still have long way to go. So without further ado, let us get started. So now today we're talking about children of gambling parents. Um, to more specifically, children of pathological gambling parents. Children whose parents are addicted to gambling. Now, pathological gambling um, occurs when a person gambles compulsively to an extent that the wagering had a severe negative effect on his or her important aspects of life. And even so, they still continue to gamble even with safe problems. Now, there are a few reasons for gambling and my lecturer wisely put um, the alternatives also for these reasons. So, we can see in comparison of what we actually need is not the gambling but the reason itself. So, I'll just like go through that. The first reason to gamble is for the excitement. They want to, they want to get the rush of adrenaline. So, which you can do that by just join a challenging sports or hobby. The second reason is to be social, you know, to get over isolation or shyness, which you can do through counseling or joining a club that you like, maybe you can take classes or volunteer. The third reason is they want to numb unpleasant feeling or ignore their problems. And through this, obviously, you are not um, okay if you just want to ignore your problems or numb your feelings, so you should consider therapy. Um, or counseling session for alternatives. Okay. The fourth reason is because you're bored, which you know the alternative is definitely find something other than gambling to be passionate about and find others with the same passion. The next reason is they want to relax. Now, if you want to relax, you can do exercise, you can do deep breathing, meditation, and 
massage and the last reason is they want to solve money problems which I don't know it's too obvious by now but gambling does not solve money problems if you do have money problems what you need to do is you need to seek help from professionals maybe specifically credit counselor now let's we've gone through about the gambling itself now we can take a look about the common stresses of children of gamblers the first one they lack emotional validation which means your feelings and experiences are not confirmed so they find it hard to identify or even trust their own emotions and thoughts and they may feel confused about their perception as a result they find it hard to judge evaluate cope with events and lack of confidence in themselves may make them more insecure and fearful the second stressor is lack of environmental stability um, this is what i've said before in the last episode children with alcoholism family routines uh, and goals are important to children because that's where they learn the value of work persistent um, and frustration tolerance but if you have a gambling parents um, Families, routines, and roles are just out of the window. The third stressor is lack of emotional predictability. Gambling parents may be excessively indulgent and stimulating or physically absent that they are emotionally unavailable or unkeeping to their children. Because, you know, in healthy families, parents should respond to the child with approval and love, meet their needs appropriately with neither too much or little gratifications. But again, if your parents are involved in pathological gambling, those are just out of the window. And having um, gambling parents, they may learn unhelpful rules. They may learn unhelpful rules to react to stress. I'll share a few of them. Um, first one, they cannot trust themselves or others because they are raised with lies and sin. The second, they will act out or internalize angry feelings between those two binaries. Next, they need immediate gratification. Then, they may over-responsible or extremely responsible. Um, again, binary. Next, they may become loners or refuse to be alone. Again, binary. Next one, they become overcautious or take unnecessary risks. Again, binary. Um, then, there are the effects of gambling problems. And it's actually tied to three phases. Denial, stress, and exhaustion. These phases display typical course for of for the effect of gambling problems. So some of the problems are poor communication, relationship and sexual dissatisfaction, conflicts and arguments, and even consideration of separation or divorce. Now with that being said, um, here are the few impacts of gambling over family environments. Firstly, they have a high levels of anger and low levels of clear and effective communication um, they lack commitment and support um, they participate less in generally um, life activities like social activities recreational activities the children's and the children's activities themselves yeah. and they may have uh, financial problems emotional problems inconsistent discipline in the family um, which may lead to confusion of family roles and responsibilities and 
Oh yeah, okay, that's it. That's it. Oh yeah, okay, that's it. So now, when um, there are family members who gambles, it also affects the other family members' health and well-being. Um, they may, which can be um, divided into three aspects. Um, emotional disturbances, physical complaints, and behavioral difficulties. Right. So, yeah, that's it. I guess it's also quite uh, simple, but actually kind of like deep um, topic, actually. Like I've said before, in any type of gambling, uh, I'm sorry, in any type of addiction, whatever addiction that you indulge in, I mean, at least in the previous episode, I talked about alcoholism. But generally, in any addiction that you indulge in, you are, well, definitely you are ruining yourself. But then again, you are also ruining others who love you and others who you love. So, never think that your problem is only your problem because it's going to negatively affect others. So, for now, I'll just recap. Pathological gambling can be defined as when a person gambles compulsively to an extent that the wagering has a severe negative effect on his or her reported life um, and yet still continue to gamble. The common stresses of children of gamblers are lack of emotional validation, lack of environmental stability, and lack of emotional predictability. Some of the unhappy rules that children, children learn to react to stress, they don't trust themselves or others, and then there's this they need immediate gratification and then there's this binary they either act out or internalize their angry feelings they either over responsible or extremely irresponsible they either become loners or they refuse to be alone they became over cautious or they take unnecessary risks now the effects of gambling problems can be um, seen in three phases the denial phase the stress phase and the exhaustion phase and some of the effects some of the impacts on the family environments, they have high level of anger and conflict. They have low levels of clear and effective communication. They lack commitment and support. They, they participate less in activities. They have financial and emotional problems. Um, the discipline in the family is inconsistent. Um, there's the confusion of family roles and responsibility. Then the children also may develop more addiction in adulthood and domestic problems. So yeah, I guess that wrapped up nicely. So I'll stop now. I'll see you again for the next episode. I hope you'll stick around for more. So until then, I hope you guys have a wonderful day ahead.